We're starting a new book this morning, Nahum. So why don't you grab your Bible and open to the place where your pages stick together in your Bible. Um, the gold leaf has not been broken. I say that jokingly, but you know what's funny is um, you'll find most churches, you'll, you'll not see them go through the book of Nahum. Um, well, in fact, I bet there's pastors out there that have never preached one sermon from the book of Nahum. Um, and the reason why, um, well, um, you know, um, the book of Nahum is about the destruction of Nineveh. It's more of the Old Testament blood and guts. You know, it's, it's that part of the Old Testament that some people don't like to read and hear about. And some churches, you know, um, you know pastors can just kind of focus on their favorite scriptures. And that, that, I think that's okay. There's some great sermons that come from churches like that. But my question is, are you covering the full counsel of God? I love what Paul said there in Acts 20. We have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. And some churches, I think they would skip over Nahum because man, it's just kind of not so fun. It's kind of a blood and guts brutal Old Testament. You know, Andrew Stanley said, we need to, you know, disconnect ourselves or unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Huge goof. Um, Paul told young Timothy, he said, all scripture is inspired or God breathed, and it's good for instruction, correction, and reproof. Um, all meaning Nahum, the book of Nahum. Um, you know, and I call out guys, you know, like, like even Joel Osteen, you know, Joel's a nice guy. It seems like he's a really friendly dude and he's got a nice mullet and all that stuff. Um, but he only talks about fun stuff, grace, mercy, uh, you know, victory and all that stuff, which that's true, but you're only getting half of the story. You see, I'm of the conviction, if you read the whole Bible, you get grace and mercy and hope and victory. You do get that, that's awesome but you also see a lot of wrath and judgment and righteousness and even tons of stuff about hell. That's the stuff you never hear Joel talk about. Um, but the, the problem that I have with that, and one of the reasons I love going through the Bible is it forces us to go through books like Nahum, um, where we have to kind of see the judgment. Well, why should we see that? We're saved and we're going to heaven because of God. I have the feeling that if you, if you don't really know what we were really gonna get, you don't appreciate what we do get. In other words, God's grace is never so sweet. When you read the book of Nahum, you have to say, oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for not, I should be a person that's being written about in Nahum. What's Nahum about? It's the destruction of the city of Nineveh. Nineveh, you say? Didn't we already cover this place? Who was the prophet that came into Nineveh? Anybody? Jonah. After being barfed back on the beach, remember Jonah half digested and come walking in reluctantly saying, okay, I'll go to Nineveh. And he goes and said, okay, if you don't repent, you're gonna all die. Like this really short little sermon, you know, you're all gonna be destroyed. And remember that happened? The whole city repented and got saved. And Jonah went off outside of town and pouted because they all got saved. He wanted to see them judged. He wanted to see Nineveh, Nineveh crushed. And that wasn't the heart of the Lord. The Lord's heart was to be merciful even to Nineveh, which was a pagan, violent, sinful city. And the Lord was gracious and sent the prophet you know, Jonah to go and speak to the Ninevites. And then they repented. So you might say, well, Brett, then why does Nahum the prophet come and talk about the destruction? Well, if you go from Jonah, you fast forward a hundred years. And human nature, man, it's the same. You know, they may have repented in the time of Jonah, but it didn't take them very long. After a hundred years, they were right back in the same place they were pre-Jonah. You know, violent, you know, uh, totally perverted, pagan, and they were doing the same old things. And now in the book of Nahum, God says 
Time's up. You're toast. You're going down. Now, what's interesting about that, again, you'll never hear about that from some, does God say that at times? Can you think of another city where God said, time's up? Anybody? Sodom and Gomorrah. God, you know, was merciful and waited all these years. With Nineveh, he waited hundreds and hundreds of years. He's very patient and long-suffering. But God was patient up to a point, but then there was a, a point where God says, time's up. And that's what the book of Nahum is really all about. You know, it, it's interesting because, you know, the Lord, he is a good God, but he's gonna judge Nineveh. And some people struggle with that dichotomy that God is good, but he also has wrath and judgment. And some of you might say, well, I don't like talking about wrath, but see, the problem is if you don't get the full counsel of God, you might miss something. One of the major themes in the Bible, this isn't just me saying this, one of the major themes in the Bible is as Nineveh's crushed and as Sodom and Gomorrah, and we could talk about not only these cities, but even kingdoms like the Babylonians crushed, the Assyrians crushed, Jerusalem crushed. Like in the Old Testament, yeah, you get all these cities and nations and some of you might think, well, I'm sure glad that God is different today. Question, has God ever changed? Is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New? I've heard people say stuff, I kind of like the God of the New Testament more than, what do you think they're different gods? God, as the old gospel Delta Blues song, was it blind Willie Johnson who's saying, God don't ever change. Um, and I love that, it's true. God does not change. And He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if God crushed Nineveh because of their paganism and, and evil and violence, what's he gonna do to America? Oh, America, man, God shed his grace on us. America the beautiful, come on. But, but do you understand? There's gonna be an end point, not just for America, but the Bible speaks of a global time where God says of the world, time's up, of the whole world. When's that gonna be? Well, that's what the disciples asked Jesus. There in Matthew 24, they said, Jesus, when's the end of the world gonna be? And what are the signs of that time? What's, what's gonna happen? And then Jesus went on for two chapters in red letters talking about the end of the world. And he started out saying, listen, it's gonna be like this. There's gonna be wars and rumors of wars. Does that sound familiar? We talked about this at the prophecy update two nights ago. If you missed our prophecy update, would you please watch it and, and even maybe share it? Because I think we covered one of the more important topics of our time right now. This, um, you know, the Russian, Ukrainian, their invasion and what's happening there. Um, and uh, I, I think there's a specific message that I was really wanting to get to our Slavic community, both Russians and Ukrainians, that I think is an important message. But, you know, if you don't think the world is teetering on great peril, it's probably because you don't watch the news. Today, um, the headlines, Putin, uh, says this boldly, he says, because of sanction, that's a declaration of war. That's what he's saying. Because the United States putting sanctions on Russia, that is a declaration of war. Putin is declaring war on America because we put sanctions on him. And don't forget, I know this is for some of you younger people, um, we've lost the sight of this, but he's a world nuclear power and so are the United States. Well, that's good. At least we have nuke and we'll battle it out. Do you, do you realize um, there's something we've forgotten called mutually assured destruction. Do you guys remember that? In my generation, we were taught this because you know, we realized we could destroy the world five times over with our nuclear weapons. And you, know, you think Nagasaki and Hiroshima was bad enough. Um, those are like BB guns compared to the nuclear weapons we have today. 
And there's simulations that you can look up and see about what would happen if you know, there was a nuclear exchange between the powers, whether it's China or Russia or the United States, and pretty much everybody dies. We all lose. Um, and the, the certain peril that's involved, Brett, are you saying that this is the end of the world? Who knows? But Jesus said there'll be wars. And even the word rumors of war, we did a little deep dive into the Greek word for rumors of wars. And it's an interesting word because it's not just that there was wars, but there's wars. And it's not that people are going, hey, there's wars over here and rumor, rumor, rumor. No, it's more like there's all kinds of misinformation and deceit around warfare. Is that happening today? Boy, if you think you know what's going on in the Russian-Ukrainian war right now, that means you probably don't. If you say, oh, I know everything. I know all this stuff about, because I've done deep dive into all kinds of topics. And boy, the deeper you dive, the more conceit and propaganda uh, and weirdness you'll find. On really both sides, I gotta say. It's an interesting day we're living where there's wars and rumors of wars and all kinds of misinformation about wars. And then it goes on and says, and, and national rise against nation, ethnicity against ethnicity. Ethnos is the Greek word there. The kingdom against kingdom is more of a political realm. So you got ethnicity against ethnicity and you got political group over here and a political warring against each other. That's what the Bible says in the last days. So could it be that we're living in the last days? Maybe, it's possible. I wouldn't be surprised if we were. Um, could we live for another hundred years before the rapture of the church? Could be, I don't know, I wouldn't be dogmatic. But it sure seems to me like the Lord could at any second say, time's up. What'll happen when that happens? Well, similar to Sodom and Gomorrah, and you know, here in our story in Nahum uh, with Nineveh, um, the Lord is gonna destroy and crush the nations. Um, it's gonna happen. It's called the time of the great tribulation. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 24, when he said there'll be tribulation during that time that'll be second to no other time in history. Uh, whether you're talking, you know, in World War I, they thought, it was, they thought that was the uh, Armageddon. They thought World War I was Armageddon. They thought World War II might be the next one. And, and as bad as the Holocaust and the Nazis and six million Jews being killed in the concentration camps and all that, that was bad. But Jesus said, even worse than that, the tribulation is gonna be worse than any other time in the history of the world. And that's coming when God says time's up. Now there's good news. Um, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, that time of God's wrath being poured out upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world called the tribulation, the Lord says, you as Christians are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. We'll be raptured, taken up. And if you say, well, I don't know if I believe in the rapture. Um, February's prophecy update, I went into a whole description of the rapture of the church and why I believe the, one of the first things that'll happen. If the Lord says time's up, the next thing that happens is the rapture of the church. We're taken up to be with the Lord and we'll be there forever with him. That's a good thing. But then the tribulation comes on this earth and man, you get a sense from so many ways. And, and uh, that's why we do prophecy updates, just to kind of do what the Bible says, to watch the signs of the times. And that's what we're doing, trying to be obedient to God's word in that. But see, here's the problem with humanity. Human nature says, well, God hasn't done anything yet. We must be okay. So what? We're uh, sinful as a nation. So what? We have corruption in our government. Ah, so what? So what? We abort millions of babies. So what? We celebrate sinful things. LGBTQ, we march with pride, uh, even though the Bible says that's called sin. And, and we think that Sodom and Gomorrah, they, they, they were judged, but we're not gonna get judged at some point. I believe that day is coming and it could be soon. Oh boy, Brett, Mr. Doom and Gloom. No, I'm Mr. Boom and Zoom. I believe that the sound of the trumpet, boom, and then the rapture of the church, zoom. Boom and zoom is what's coming for the Christian. 
Doom and gloom is for the un- unbeliever, uh, the, the unsaved person, and I would hope that they would never go there and be a part of that. But, but here's what I need you to really understand. Don't mistake God's patience and his long suffering for apathy or not caring. The Ninevites, hundred years after Jonah, they're like, yeah, whatever, we're gonna go back to our paganism and we're gonna go back to our violence and we're gonna be a horrible group of people. And that's what they were. But finally the Lord says, time's up. And, and there's an old saying that's so true, the wheels of God's judgment turn slowly, but they grind thoroughly. Don't mistake the, the patience. Even the Bible says in the last days that men will say, where's the promise of his coming? Things are the same from the very beginning. Nothing's changed. The scoffers in the last days. And we have those, by the way. But the Lord says, the Lord, you know, through Peter, he says, you know, but the Lord is not, you know, a, a slacker or a lazy is the idea concerning his coming, but he is long suffering to us, not willing that anyone should perish. Why hasn't the Lord said time's up yet? The Bible tells us, because he doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants you to be saved. He wants as many people who will repent from their sins and accept Christ and be saved. And so the Lord's saying, I'm gonna just wait. And there's a time in history in the future somewhere where God's gonna say, okay, that's it, time's up. And that's where wrath and judgment's gonna be poured out on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. You say, okay, Brett, that's great. Um, And that's what the book of Nahum's about, pretty much. Judgment, wrath, destruction. But in, this, in the middle of that wrath and judgment and trouble, there's, there is one shiny little verse tucked away in the book of Nahum that I think is really good. And we'll look at the whole book, even in all its doom and gloom on Wednesday night. But I wanna show you uh, Nahum chapter one, verse seven, where we see that bright spot of light. Every book of the Bible has one, or at least one. Um, and that bright spot is really Jesus. Remember Hebrews says, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. Um, and this is that part where we get to see the bright light. It's Nahum chapter one, verse seven. It says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knoweth them that trust in him. Once again, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knoweth them that trust in him. Talked, now, if you keep reading, uh, It says, but with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof and darkness shall pursue his enemies. And it just gets worse from there. Um, Nahum is a depressing book. I'm just gonna tell you right now. But don't you love this little shiny spot of light in the middle of this book of real catastrophe? And, And I find that as we live in troubled times, as they were living in troubled times, I find great comfort and solace in this verse. And I hope you do too. And I hope you can pass this verse on to your friends. Because I think this verse is appropriate for the days we're living. Um, God is good. That's, there's three things that are spoken of here. God is good, um, and he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. And then thirdly, he knows them that trust in him. I love those three things. The goodness of the Lord. How can you see the goodness of the Lord um, when bad things happen? And this is a, a, an argument people make and the secularist likes to ask, if God is good, then why do bad things happen to good people? And I always like to remind you, what a false dilemma. When people say, well, if bad, why do bad things happen to good people? The answer is real simple. There are no good people. Bible makes that clear. Well, I'm good. Nope, you're a sinner. Wretch, miserable sinner. Well, Brett, speak for yourself. I am, and that's me too. The Bible says there's no one righteous, not even one. There's none that truly seeks after God. And Paul the apostle said, oh, wretched man that I am. You say, well, he must have had a real sin problem. Do you understand that Paul, 
was called the Pharisee of all Pharisees. The Pharisees did their best to live as holy as a person could humanly possibly live. That was Paul. And he was schooled by Gamaliel, the, the Pharisee of all Pharisees. And, and so Paul, before you think, well, he must've been a real sinner. No, Paul was the guy who realized the older he got, he even said to young Timothy, as an old man, Paul said, I, Paul, am the chiefest of sinners. Once you get older and you realize, oh, I'm not really that good. I think bad thoughts. I have bad attitudes and my bad attitudes are an abomination before the Lord. And you start to realize, oh man, I'm a really huge honking sinner. If you don't know that right now, man, that's the first thing we gotta get clear. You gotta understand you're a sinner and you fall short of the glory of God by far, not even close. Um, that's the bad news. But the good news is God loves you and he wants to forgive you of your sins. And so even when you become a Christian, one of the great things is to understand this little verse that God is good, he's a good God. He's, he, he doesn't wanna be mad at you, he doesn't wanna crush you. In fact, the Lord would that none should perish, so he wants to save you. And the Lord will lovingly offer to you free salvation that can only come from the Lord. Man, I love the goodness of the Lord. Um, now, just because um, we see bad things happen, it doesn't mean that God is not good. Do you, do you know that person that's had bad things happen in their life and so they sort of chalk God off? Have you seen that? It's heartbreaking because it's really, they haven't really thought it through all the way. Did God ever promise that bad things would not happen to you? No, the Bible actually teaches the opposite. In fact, Jesus said, the more godly you live, the more you'll suffer persecution. That's a promise from God's word. All who live godly in Christ shall suffer. Tape that to your mirror as a memory verse promise. <laughs> I love it how Christians, you know, we, we love to memorize, my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. We love the, 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 the fun, warm, fuzzy, happy ones, but you don't, like, like, you know, married people, do you tape this one? All who are married will suffer. That's what Paul says. And the married people are like, yeah, you should probably tape that to your married single people. Uh, be no, I'm sure nobody's saying that in here. <laughs> but it's true, marriage is hard and you do go through times of suffering, that's true. And it's a promise of God's word. There's benefits of marriage too, but, but all that to say, man, um, the promises of God, they don't promise that you'll live a life of petunias and unicorns and rainbows. That doesn't, there's no promise of that in the Bible. Now there's some evangelistic, uh, you know, uh, name it and claim it guys in the 1980s on the TV were tell, you know, the evangelists who were going around saying, you're gonna be victorious and everything's gonna be awesome and everything's, you'll be rich, healthy, wealthy, and wise and all that. Well, that fails because Jesus was not that, Paul was not that, Peter was not that. They were all suffering, had very little possessions, and people hated them. Um, like that, that's, that's just a total wrong teaching from the Bible. So Brett, are you suggesting that if I'm a Christian, things may not get better? Well, not in this life, not necessarily. They could, but they may not. The mature Christian understands that God is still good no matter how bad things get. You might've prayed for Uncle Bill who got cancer and Lord save Bill and help him to be healed. And when he didn't get healed and he died of cancer, I know people with a scenario like that that have walked away from the Lord because Uncle Bill died of cancer. Do you understand that cancer and sickness and disease is a result of man's sin? When Adam and Eve bit into the fruit, that ushered death into the world. And, and the startling statistics, 10 out of every 10 people die. That's still in place. So when someone dies, you say, oh Lord, that's not fair. Everybody dies and it's because of human sin. The mature Christian understands bad things happen even though 
Um, you wish they wouldn't, but God is still good. I love the story of um, Alan Gartner, who was an experienced um, missionary, but he also was known for going into the toughest places in the world and trying to spread the gospel. And he went through all kinds of trouble and challenges. He was famous for saying this, while God gives me strength, failure will not daunt me. And this guy went to brutal places. Well, he ended up going down to the Picton Islands down in the southern part of uh, South America near Chile. And um, in 1851, at the age of 57, he died of disease and starvation while serving on the Picton Islands, uh, Island, the southern tip there. When his body was found in the little hut that he was living, trying to be a missionary there, they found laying next to his body, um, his diary. And in his diary, um, it bore the record of his hunger and thirst and wounds and loneliness and suffering. The last entry though in his little diary is the book showed the struggle of his shaking hand as he tried to write legibly and it read this, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Now you might say, well, Brett, that guy just been out in the jungle a little too long, man. uh, He's crazy, That, that sounds crazy. But no, that's a mature believer who knows that even in our suffering and even our bummers and our downside, man, we, we realize that God is still good. Um, this time on earth, God didn't promise goodness. He promises goodness to believers for eternity, but not necessarily presently on this earth. You almost as a Christian have to view this world as a boot camp, training ground. This is the tough part. We gotta do hard work here and we might even wound ourselves or hurt. Um, but the Lord is almost saying, hey, listen, I'm preparing you for something bigger and greater for all of eternity. And, and so when bad things happen to you in this life, that shouldn't shake your faith and it shouldn't shake your knowledge that God is in fact good. This verse is powerful. God is good. Let's, let's break it down. God is good. God is a stronghold and God cares about those who trust in him. Number one, God is good. Let's, let's meditate on that. Now the Bible tells us over and over of the goodness of God. I could talk about, you know, dozens and dozens of verses about God's goodness. Let me, let me show you some of my favorites. Exodus 34, six. It says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abundant in goodness and in truth. I love that, that he's abundant. You know, some of you are, you know, you know, might think of yourself as a pretty good person, but are you abundant in goodness? God doesn't run out. It's like his goodness overflows. I love that. Exodus 34, 6. First Chronicles 16, 34. It says, oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good and his mercy endureth forever. Man, I love that. Um, Psalm 34, eight says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Here's the psalmist wanting you and me to just take a, a taste. Because the idea is once you, t- have you ever tasted something so delicious that you really wanted everybody else to try it? Oh, you gotta try this. Have you ever done that? Or you try to tell people about your favorite restaurant and people are like, eh, I don't know, whatever, I'm not into that. You're like, no, you, you really have to check this out. Um, like, uh, you know, here in Portland, we're in no loss for good restaurants and places to eat. Um, you know, and, and when you've tasted something good, you want everybody else to taste it. Like, like you know, Pine State Biscuits. How many of you guys have been to Pine State Biscuits? Oh, okay. You guys are more than all the other services combined. That tells me something about this congregation, this part of the church. You gotta go to Pine State and you gotta get the Reggie Deluxe with extra gravy on top. Oh my goodness. It's like eating little baby angels. Uh, it's, I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, <laughs> it's so good. Get in there, you little cherub. You know, it's like, um, sorry. 
<laughs> yeah. Now, um, when you taste something that delicious, you go, oh man, everybody's got to try this. Well, that's what the psalmist is saying. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is so good. Um, I love that. And then Psalm 107, oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfy the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. Man, when your soul feels empty and lacking and you're spiritually hungry and thirsty, um, do you understand what you need is to understand and take in of the goodness of the Lord? That's what the Psalm here is telling us, God is good. But what does God's goodness actually technically mean? If you look at the word good and in, in goodness in the, in the Hebrew, it's linked to the word generosity. It's not that he's just good versus bad. Um, God is good and do, does good things all the time, but it speaks almost more to his heart to be generous to his creation, to his people. Um, you know, um, it's, it includes his infinite generous attitude toward all of us. Um, and it, it's, it's something that the, the Bible almost works extra hard to convince us that God is so good that he wants to be generous to you. Um, he tries to use the analogy, and this is good. If you're a parent of children, many of you, you know what this means. Have you ever just wanted to give really good gifts to your kids? Because you love them. Other people might look at your kids and go, they don't deserve any gifts. Santa might be saying, no, naughty list. Um, sorry, Junior doesn't get anything this year. Lump of coal for your child. But you're like, oh, I love that little rascal though. And, and as a parent, Man, you know, you, you just love and you wanna be, so at Christmas time, whether they were good or bad, you, you, you give them gifts. But here's what Jesus said about this. He said oh, um, there in um, uh, Matthew 7, 11, you can remember that by the convenience store, 7, 11. If you then, parents, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? In other words, you as parents, you're sinners and you still want to give good things to your kids. How much more will the perfect goodness of God be wanting to give you blessing? So God's goodness is all throughout the Bible and it's just hammered at home over and over again. Do you believe that God is good? As it turns out, one of Satan's chief works is to convince people that God is actually not good. Do you know that? What was the first thing that came out of Satan's little snaky lips? Anybody? What was the first thing that he said? Well, let's go back to Genesis chapter three, where we read about this in Genesis three, verse one. It says, now the serpent, that's Satan, uh, was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, yea, hath God said, there's the first words right there, hath, hath God said, what is, what is he doing? Well, here he's, he's questioning God. Hath God really said? Maybe even more directly, he's questioning God's word. That's the very first thing we hear from Satan. Hath God really said? That's what he does with you and me. He wants you to question. But, but this question is not just God or just God's word, but as you read what happens here, he's questioning God's goodness. Check it out. Yea, hath God said, it goes on, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it. She added that part, by the way. Um, it's funny how we even add to the word of God, maybe unknowingly sometimes. Uh, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. 
And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Satan says, hath God really said, questioning him, him and his goodness. See, in a sense, you can almost boil this down. Satan was saying God is hoarding all the wisdom and knowledge for himself and he wants humanity to stay in their stupid condition, not knowing good and evil. And then you kind of look at this and you think, oh man, like who was right? Like this is one of those things, it's hard to, you kind of read this and go, okay, who was correct? God said the day you eat of that tree, you'll surely die. Satan said, you won't die, but you'll be enlightened. Which one was right? Was Satan true or God true? Anybody want to answer that? <laughs> it's a little tricky, isn't it? Because she, she didn't die. She ate of the fruit and surely she did not die. So was God lying? No. Satan likes to twist stuff. You see, when God said in the day you eat of that, when he said you will surely die, he didn't mean the simple, just your heart stops, kick the bucket, pushing up daisies. What, what God meant was, all of death for all of humanity for all time would now be upon all of humanity. In other words, the, the, the dying process would begin for everyone. Adam and Eve kicked off the, the dying thing, death and sin, and the world ended in, entered into a fallen state. The moment she ate into that, death for everything came into pass for all eternity. Like that's a real bummer. Would have been better had she just kicked over or you know, Adam just died right there. But no, all of humanity entered into death. So God was right, Satan twisted it, and he was technically right. Well, you didn't really die as far as die, die. But, and their eyes were open. They saw that they were naked. And suddenly they're sinful. And uh, the rest is history. You know, all that said, um, Satan was trying to hoard saying that God was hoarding the wisdom for himself. That's what Satan will do with you. He'll question this idea of the goodness of God. And, and I want you to understand, just because something bad happens, we shouldn't throw out the truth that God is still good. The question that you have to ask is, do we really know what's good? So if Uncle Bill did die of cancer, do we know if there's any goodness in that? Well, if you know the Lord, if Uncle Bill was a Christian, you can be sure that God worked that out for good somehow. Well, how could dying of cancer be good? I don't know. But I've actually seen that happen in some examples, even in this congregation. Who knows what the Lord was protecting Uncle Bill from down the road? Because there's worse things than dying of cancer. And those who suffer in this life, dying of cancer, did you know the Lord counts that suffering somehow in heaven for eternity? It's like you get a, our, our um, you know, afflictions and troubles, the Bible says that it builds a far heavier weightiness in heaven and eternity. So that your suffering in heaven will work out to make you a better person in all of eternity. So God knows if you're going through suffering, God knows that somehow it's gonna work itself out. So the, the thing about being a believer in God, you don't know what's good and you don't know what's bad. You really don't. I'm reminded of that little book that I used to go to every time, you know, I think I was in first or second grade and I loved it because it was, it was, it was a picture book and not a ton of words. But it also had some cool, this little cartoon of this kid, you know, it's called Fortunately and Unfortunately. How many of you guys read that book in school? Yeah, like three of you. <laughs> um, it was great. There's this little kid, he, you know, the first you open up, fortunately, Billy was invited to a birthday party. And then you turn the page, unfortunately, and it shows him in the rain in New York City. It says, unfortunately, the party was in Miami and he lived in New York. 
then you turn the page and then he's in this like biplane airplane. Fortunately, he was able to fly in an airplane to Miami. And then you turn the page and the plane's exploding and he's flying through the air. Unfortunately, the plane exploded. And so there's Billy falling through the air. And then you turn the page. Fortunately, Billy had a parachute. You turn the page. Unfortunately, the parachute had a hole in it. And then he's, he's again plunging to the ground. In the next picture, you turn the page and there's this little tiny picture of him way up in the sky. And then way down below, there's this little tiny haystack which is actually a big hay pile. And it says, fortunately, there was a haystack on the ground. And then you turn the page and, and then he gets close to the haystack, but then he's close and you see this pitchfork sticking out of the <laughs> haystack. Unfortunately, there was a pitchfork sticking out of the haystack. And then you turn the page and then he, fortunately, he just missed the, the pitchfork. And I go, good, and then you turn the page. Unfortunately, he also missed the haystack. <laughs> and then you turn the page. Fortunately, next to the haystack was the ocean. And then you turn the page. Unfortunately, it was shark infested waters and the sharks, you know, nipping at all his hands. Like it just keeps going. You know, it's this great, uh, you know, dichotomy between fortunately and unfortunately, and that's life. That's, that's you and me. And you, and you wonder, is this fortunate or is this unfortunate? And, and you know, the world would say, who really knows? And when you and I ask that question, who really knows what's good or bad? Well, the answer is God. God knows what's good and bad. Um, you know, the Chinese have that old proverb they used to say from, you know, millennia ago, I guess, um, that was, was trying to teach the Chinese that you don't really know what's good or what's bad. Um, and I remember more of a secularist, Alan Watts uh, told this story and, and he said it in a way that was more like, who can really know? But he, he said, you know, told the, the Chinese proverb goes something like, you know, there was a Chinese farmer and um, his, his horse ran away and the neighbors that evening came around to commiserate and say, oh, we're sorry, you know, that's really bad, your horse ran away. And, and the farmer, the Chinese farmer said, maybe. And they're like, oh, whatever. Um, well, the next day the horse came back, but it also brought seven other wild horses with it. And they all ran into the corral. And the neighbors came over and said, wow, that's awesome. You have, now you have seven more horses. What, what a fortunate set of circumstances. And he said, maybe. And then the next day, the farmer's son went out to try to break one of the horses and ride it, but he got bucked off and he broke his legs. And the neighbors came over that night. Oh man, we're so sorry. That's really bad. And he said, maybe. And the next day the military came and they were you know, drafting all their young men for war. Um, but when they came to his house, their son had a broken leg. So they said, well, he can't be in the draft. The neighbors came over, oh, how fortunate. And the, the, the farmer said, maybe. And, and it goes on and on, the Chinese proverb, why? Well, Alan, Gard, uh, Alan Watts, who, who wrote this um, or you know, shared this, in his secularist kind of uh, mind, mindset, he, he made this conclusion. I'll just read his conclusion. He said, the whole process of nature is an integrated process of immense complexity, and it's impossible to tell whether anything that happens is, is good or bad, because you never know the consequence of the misfortune, or you'll never know the consequences of the good fortune. Now, if you're a non-believing person, not a Christian, yeah, you're gonna be confused. You won't know if something's actually good or bad. True, that's true. But as it turns out, we as Christians have an advantage. Do you understand this? If you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, we have an advantage. And this is one of the most classic scriptures in the Bible. Many of you have it memorized. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called, the called according to his purpose. 
Um, this is a truth uh, that we know. If you break your arm and you're a Christian, well, God's got something good for that. Something good's good. Got a flat tire on your way to work? Well, God must be doing something good. Well, what if it doesn't turn out to be good in this lifetime? Well, guess what? Um, it may be good in the next. Maybe the Lord's building patience in you or character in you that's gonna pay off down the road. Maybe that flat tire is keeping you from an accident that was just a mile down the road. <clears throat> we don't know for sure, but God does. And God says, I'm working everything together for good in your life. So that's how good he is. Oh, but Brett, what if you die? If you die, that's bad. Well, even God says of death, you know this, precious, Psalm 116, 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's a good thing when a Christian dies, do you realize that's the best day of your life? Um, it's interesting because um, this changes your life perspective. If you have this notion and understand that God is working everything for good in your life and you don't count your life as dear as everybody else. If you're an atheist, then this life is all you have. No wonder they're trying to preserve life like crazy people. You know, we gotta save our lives and we gotta make ourselves live as long as possible. Don't do anything that's dangerous. Have you noticed in the last couple of years, there's been a line drawn in the sand and people are migrating one way or the other on this one? There's people that are just living fearfully for their lives and they'll ruin all the fun because they wanna bubble wrap themselves. That's happening today. Um, but then there's those of us that kind of say, you know what, we really don't count our lives that dear to ourselves. If we die, we die. Um, there's been a lot of great people, by the way, in history who had that kind of an attitude. Martyrs of the Christian faith, military heroes that laid their lives down for their, their country or their, like there's, there's a whole group of amazing people throughout history who didn't really say living this life is everything. Um, I'm one of those guys, I have to admit, like, like uh, I've, I've done a lot of dangerous stuff in my life. Um, one of the things I'm told is one of the more dangerous things is since I was a little kid, I've done motocross. And I, I, I've, I had a little moment where I hit the ground a little hard one day and I went to the doctor because of my knee and stuff. Well, my doctor just said, um, you know, Pastor Brett, you just can't ride dirt bikes. I'm like, why? Well, he said, dirt bikes are dangerous. Motocross is dangerous. And I said, okay. And I got a new doctor because that's just dumb. <laughs> you know, if I die on a dirt bike, that, man, you know, people are trying to make it so you'll live past 100 these days. Oh, I'd much rather die on a dirt bike. I'm just saying. Um, these people that wanna preserve their lives and, and they live like, like we gotta be so safe. But, but man, um, I think that when you're a Christian, you realize God has an appointment for you to die and, and God knows when that is. And you can, some of you say, well, I'm gonna take up skydiving. Well, your day might be sooner than others. Uh, who knows? I've done skydiving too. Uh, that's this, I've done a lot of these things. But, um, but the thing you have to understand is, man, the Lord is in control. And, and it's a change of perspective. I like 2 Corinthians when it talks about this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, while we, the church, Christians, look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, is the word there, but things which are not seen, they're eternal. If we really let this attitude sink in, that there's an eternal big picture that God cares about, it changes the way we live and think in this life today. We don't have to be fearful for our lives. I saw a video sent from one of our uh, Ukrainian families here in the church and, um, and they, uh, one of their, I think their uncle or something is a pastor over in, in Ukraine. And um, they, they, they sent a, a snippet of this pastor 
of the family at Athey Creek, but the, the pastor with some of the people from this community, they're all in this um, sort of half broken up um, basement. It looked like it maybe already had been bombed, <laughs> but um, they were in this basement and they're all worshiping and dancing and singing about how the Lord has saved them. Uh, and they just seemed really joyful. How can that be? They're in a war zone right now. And how can a Ukrainian be happy at all right now? Because as it turns out, they were actually singing of the goodness of the Lord. Don't you love that? You see, when you know God is good, even if you're on the worst day of your life and in a war zone, you can actually trust that God knows what he's doing. And see that, that's where we get to the second notion in this verse. I know we're taking a while here, but we're almost done. Not only do we have God is good, but God is also a stronghold. And the verse here tells us as in the day of trouble. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. And I believe you and I are living in troubled days, um, especially like in a time of battle, the Lord says, I will be your stronghold. Um, we don't really have strongholds as much, especially here in America, bunkers and things like that. But you know, have you ever been in a stronghold? There's some cool things about strongholds, especially in old ancient warfare. I mean, there were some strongholds that were like impenetrable. Um, one of the things I used to do with fifth and sixth grade boys, we'd get a bunch of um, men that would lead this, what we called the boys boot camp. And uh, some of them were uh, even, you know, sol soldiers from the military that'd come and dressed in their fatigues and stuff. And, and then we'd go and just, you know, and do some kind of tough stuff. We climbed Mount McLaughlin on the first day, which is 9,000 feet to the top. And then we'd go down and jump in the Lake of the Woods. And then we'd drive down to Captain Jack's stronghold. And we'd unload all the kids' bikes. And then we'd ride our bike through the high desert there at uh, the Lava Beds National Monument. And we'd ride through there. And, and then I'd get them to Jack, Captain Jack's stronghold. And then we'd walk in. And I always loved doing Bible lessons that were sort of object lessons to wherever we were. So we were there. You say, well, what is Captain Jack's stronghold? Well, it's an interesting story. Um, in 1872 and 1873, there were Modoc Indian Wars there. That uh, between the Modocs, there was kind of the last Indians making the last stand. They didn't want to go to the reservation in Oregon. So in, in Tule Lake, California, the very northern part of California, they, were, they went to the lava beds and they went into this natural lava bed um, fortress. It was, like, it was like a natural fortress made by God in a way. And the Indians, the Modocs, um, 50, I think there were 53 uh, warriors and there was like maybe 160 uh, altogether Indians hiding out in this stronghold. Well, the cavalry came through. Uh, President Grant um, uh, made some orders that those Indians needed to be put on a reservation. So General Canby of the cavalry, and he's the guy named after the town Canby, for you Canbyites, maybe you didn't know that. But General Canby goes down there and he's outnumbering the Indians um, 10 to one. Um, which is amazing. So, you know, he's got like 600 and something, um, uh, you know, cavalrymen. How many Indians died in the war? Zero. How many cavalry? I think it was something like 50 or 60 cavalry died there. It was really kind of a crazy deal. And how did the Indians survive? Well, as it turns out, the lava beds, you couldn't even ride a horse. It was so rough. And there was all these little sneaky trails and hideouts and the Indians just had this place dialed. And so they used the natural landscape to just be a stronghold. They had caves and these lava tubes that they'd go down in and they could go from one part of the desert and then go underground to another part of the desert. And uh, the cavalry just didn't even know what to do with this. But I told the story to the young boys as we're sitting there with my Bible open. And I said, you know, this is a stronghold. The Bible says God is a stronghold. 
And I'd got to share with them some of those scriptures like this, Psalm 62. And by the way, in the Bible, in the Psalms, when we talk about a rock, God being a rock, the idea is a fortress, a rock fortress. He says, he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. My, in God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Man, he's our refuge. Um, Psalm 18:2. the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. And then Psalm 73, 71:3, be thou my strong habitation. That's like a place to live that's like a fortress. Whereunto I may continually resort, thou hast given commandment to save me for thou art my rock and my fortress. Like all through the Bible, it says God is our fortress and our rock. And I would tell these young boys, as long as you stay in the fortress, see, that's what happened. You know, Kintipus was his Indian name. Captain Jack was his name given by the cavalry. They convinced him to come out and negotiate to try to settle a peace treaty between the Modocs and the cavalry. And Captain Jack and one of his lieutenants came out from the stronghold and they started meeting. Well, things went awry and Captain Jack and his buddy ended up shooting Canby and slitting his throat and shooting another, the pastor that was there to help negotiate. And then they took Captain Jack and they hung him and killed him. And then they went in and got the Modocs out of the stronghold and took him to the reservation. Like it's a really sad story. But I said, told the guys, as long as the Indians stayed in the, in the fortress, they were safe. But as soon as they went out, they were vulnerable. And I was trying to make that argument to these young guys. Guys, you gotta stay in God, trusting in the Lord. You gotta make him your fortress. As long as you stay in the fortress of God, there's no thing that can reach you. There's nobody that can take you. Um, and that's the question I ask you this Sunday afternoon. Are you in the stronghold of the Lord? You know, if you're a Christian, if you're a, a, a walking with Jesus Christian, saying, man, I'm gonna read his word, walk with Christ. Man, you're in the stronghold. There's no man that can pluck you out of his hand, the Bible says in John 10. Are you in the stronghold of the Lord? And then Jesus talks about abiding in the vine, just abiding in that place of being in Christ. Um, I love that. Well, the final part of this verse, um, you know, God is good, number one. God is a stronghold, number two. But also, number three, finally, God cares for those who trust in him. You say, Brett, that's not what my verse says. My verse says, he knoweth them that trust in him. Well, that's the King James way. The NIV, I think, puts, what is it, care? Um, the word knoweth, King James word, I love the word knoweth. You don't use that word knoweth that often. But uh, the, the Hebrew word for knoweth is yada in the Hebrew. And the, the word yada is actually not just to know, like to be acquainted, like, hello, nice to meet you, and now I know you. Nope, the word is an intimate understanding, somebody who's considered deeply a relationship with that person and even considers someone more of a familiar friend. In fact, it even goes as far as being used in the context of romance and marriage. Do you remember where it says, and Adam knew his wife, Eve? Does that mean he walked up to Eve and said, hello, my name is Mr. Adam, what's your name? It wasn't that, it was they had romance and they had children because of that romance. That was the word, knoweth or yada in the Hebrew. That's why in the New International Version, this verse reads, the Lord is good, a refuge in time of trouble. And it says he cares, not just knows, but the idea is he cares for those who trust in him. And I love that. So this is basically telling us that God cares for those who trust in the Lord. Um, first Peter chapter five reminds us, it says, casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. 
Um, by the way, you know, it says he cares for those who trust. The word trust means to lean on. God cares for people who lean on him with all their weight. Did anybody do the, the trust fall experiment in school when you were a kid? Where you had buddies stand behind you and you had to fall backwards and you were gonna trust your buddies, you know, to catch you. Um, the trust fall. My buddies never seem to wanna catch me. Uh, so I don't trust anyone now. Uh, I'm permanently scarred. <laughs> no, it's just, it's just funny because, um, you know, as it turns out, um, that's the idea is you have to trust the Lord that like you just literally let your life fall into his hands and trust that he's got you. Um, so trust and God's care often go hand in hand. And you see that in verse 31 of Psalm, or chapter 31 of Psalm 19. Oh, how great is thy goodness, which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust thee before the sons of men. The Lord will help and protect those who trust. If you don't trust the Lord and if you reject the Lord, the Lord's not gonna help you because he's a perfect gentleman. If you wanna be left alone, God will leave you alone. We see that in Israel over and over again where the Israelis said, we don't want you God anymore. We want a king instead. And so they're like, okay, I'll give you a king and good luck with that. But as long as they said, no, we'll trust the Lord and the Lord is our God, then the Lord stepped in and protected and blessed. I love that about the Lord. Do you trust the Lord? Do you know the Lord enough to trust him? Because when you read a book like Nahum, as we will on Wednesday night, you might say, oh man, this is scary. But if you know that he's good and he's a stronghold in time of trouble and he cares for those that trust in him, then you'll know it's okay, it's all gonna be good. Even if you don't really know or if your heart's still nervous, you can still put your trust in the Lord. I'm reminded when I brought my little family uh, to Disneyland for the first time in Anaheim, um, it was fun for me because see my grandfather and my dad both worked um, in construction on Disneyland. My grandpa was a superintendent and actually knew, uh, walked, walked around with Walt Disney um, back in the old days. Uh, my dad helped build the Pirates ride and my grandpa was a superintendent on the uh, It's a Small World. Um, so I'd bring my kids to Disneyland. Grandpa Todd built this. So the first place we'd go is the Pirates of the Caravan. Um, and it was always funny. But I, but, I, but I remember Brooke. Brooke was the one in my family of our kids, you know, that was maybe a little more conservative on the risky uh, thing, taking risk and stuff. Brooke, Brooke was like, yeah, I don't think I'm gonna do that. Um, going down the slide on the playground, she was like, yeah, I don't really have the need to go down that slide. And, you know, Joey'd go down to somersaults and Casey'd go down backwards at first. But Brooke's like, yeah, no. That was Brooke. But she was very logical. Um, Brooke's like a walking encyclopedia, even to this day, but she was like that as a little kid too. So I was thinking, oh man, poor Brooke, she's probably not gonna, gonna, gonna really wanna go on these rides, you know, at Disneyland. But I, I was walking down Main Street with her and I said, Brooke, are you gonna go on all the rides? And she had this very serious, thoughtful look on her face as a little, whatever, six-year-old. And she said, Daddy, if Walt Disney made these rides, then they're safe and good for children. She had logically thought out, you know, now you have to understand our family, uh, we used to watch, you know, vintage Disney and, and uh, remember Walt Disney's Sunday night program where he'd talk about the forest and the birds and remember that homey voice, Walt Disney would, and, and Brooke grew up watching Walt Disney and she thought, I can trust him. Um, so she went on Space Mountain and Indiana Jones and all those rides uh, because she knew she could trust Walt. <laughs> In the same way, you and I can live this life and go through hard things and say, Lord, we put our trust in you because we trust you. We know your character. You are good and you're a stronghold in time of trouble and you care for those who trust in you. Now that, that's, that's something we need today.
As Christians, as the church today, we need to not only live this out, but you need to share Nahum chapter one, verse seven with as many people as you can, because I find this verse extremely appropriate for the troubling days we're living in. So may the Lord give you boldness. May you have faith in a good God in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we're so thankful for your goodness. This is a good reminder of things we kind of know, but Lord, sometimes we admit our doubting and wondering, are you really there? Are you really good? And do you really have us protected in a stronghold? Lord, sometimes we're taken to the very edge of our, what seems to be what we can handle. But Lord, as we grow older in our faith, we realize you are faithful and you are good and you are a stronghold. I pray that you would be that more and more for all of us, that we would live our lives with that bigger picture in mind, not just seeing good and bad, but seeing that you're working all things together for good, for those who love you, for those that are the called, according to the purpose. If you would, just keep your heads bowed and be in prayer, Christians, because I wonder if maybe there's some that are outside of that stronghold right now. Maybe you never accepted Christ. Maybe you're here because you're interested in what this church is doing or what the Bible says, and that's great, we're glad you're here. But the Bible says that you have to trust in the Lord to actually make all this kick into gear. Otherwise, the Lord will leave you alone. And you, like the secularist, would say, I don't really know what's good or bad in my life, but if you become a believer in Christ, you won't have a perfect life. I can't promise everything's gonna be rosy and easy for you, but I can promise you that all things will be working together for good for all of eternity for you if you accept Christ. Like I said, the gospel is powerful. The gospel, the word gospel means good news. What's the good news? The bad news is we all deserve death and hell. That's the Bible. And if you don't think you deserve death and hell, then just grow older and you'll see later on that, oh yeah, I guess I kind of do deserve that. Because we're all sinners, we all fall short. But good news, the Lord loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died on the cross in our place for us. That's why Jesus died. God became a man, died on the cross for your sins. And then Jesus said, I'll prove that I am who I say I am by rising up from the dead. I will rise again on the third day, proving that I am the Messiah to save the world from its sins. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. And that's why the date system changed. That's why the world was turned upside down by a a little guy from Nazareth, a carpenter from Nazareth hanging on a cross. Why would that change the world? It's because he rose from the grave. And it was one of the most provable, most documented facts in all of history. That's why everybody's changed. That's why billions of people have said, okay, I, I, I understand I'm a sinner, so I repent. And I acknowledge my sins before God and I accept the gift of salvation from God. That's how you're saved. Romans 10 verse nine and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth, and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, that God raised him up from the dead, you will be saved. That's what it says. It's there for the taking. So that's the question I would leave with anyone who may or may not be saved here today. If you wanna accept Christ, this is a good chance for you. I'm not gonna embarrass anybody or make you get up from your chair, but right where you sit, you can confess your faith in Christ right here and be saved and forgiven for your sins and have the glorious hope of heaven. But you need to receive it. If that's you, I would ask just between you, me, and the Lord, would you acknowledge that and say, Brad, I wanna accept Christ. I wanna confess him with my mouth and believe in my heart that Jesus is my savior. And man, you'll be forgiven of your sins, saved. If that's you, would you acknowledge between you, me, and the Lord and raise your hand right now and say, Brett, that's me. And I wanna acknowledge you before we uh, pack it up. Awesome, good. You over here, cool. Good, good. Let me look around here for a second. Awesome. 
good. Right here. Over here, you see, yeah, good. Great. I'm gonna pray this prayer of confession um, and I'm gonna ask all the church, would you guys all pray out loud with me, those of you that are saved um, as well, just to pray this because we love getting behind these eight or 10 people right now, just, just confess Christ. Um, so let's pray this and pray this from your heart. The Lord will hear you, he'll honor this prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose up from the grave and that I'm forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.